Today on Foodstuffs. We get pretty real talking about food and institutions. What is the state of food and institutions? How do we get here? And how do we turn it around? We think that we're so smart. We figured out the active ingredient. We know the, um, you know, whatever the, the most important piece is. And so let's pull that out and then let, let's, let's treat that as, as, as if it's the magic bullet. And it never is. It's not the vitamin C in the orange. It's the orange. Yes. I'm David Farnell from Real Food for Real Kids. I am Lulu Cohen Farnell from Real Food for Real Kids and you're listening to Foodstuffs. Welcome to Foodstuffs, a podcast about food and culture and their intersections. I'm Jessica Walker and I'm Brian Goman. So today we're going to talk about something that I've been wanting to talk about for a very long time. This is like another one of those. This is why we're doing the podcast moments for me. Mm -hmm. Right. This is one of those topics that uh, started back when I was getting really interested in food and thinking about food in a different way and starting to connect food to things like health. I know that sounds really obvious, but as we're going <laughs> to hear later, there are some things that are very obvious that somehow we miss at first. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's also a situation where I think that this happens with us a fair amount. There's a kernel of an idea that sort of picks away at you, and then it's just a matter of finding the right person that can hold the conversation with you, or in this case, people. Yeah, that's right. So today we're going to talk to uh, Lulu Cohen Fernell and David Fernell of Real Food for Real Kids, who are responsible for feeding uh, 15,000 of our little children uh, every day here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a catering company that delivers uh, real food. I'm Quote unquote, yeah, yes. Real food, <laughs> real food to daycare centers. Real meaning food that is made mostly from unprocessed fresh ingredients with a focus on nutrition. They're also working very hard to get their food into hospitals, specifically children's hospitals. And we talked at length about the challenges of delivering healthy food to hospitals and what they believe the impacts will be if and when they finally do get there. This is the part that kind of resonates with me and made me understand why you wanted to do this because you had observed some food in hospitals. Yeah, just actually as we were getting started with this podcast, my dad got ill just Mm -hmm. sort of out of nowhere and was in the hospital for a number of months and he went through these different phases of not being able to swallow then not being able to have um, solid food and sort of stuff being sort of this is very specific which was like just the physical element of things let alone what's happening internally i mean not that that's not physical but you know what i mean it's just sort of like i can't swallow that's very very practically right going to affect what kind of food you can eat. But then you were also knowing what was happening internally and what was being served to him to eat was... Maybe not matching what he was ailing from, as Mm -hmm. in, again, taking into account that food can make us healthier or make us unhealthier. It can exacerbate, you know, bad conditions or it can uh, help us replenish our, our bodies. And I was definitely seeing that that was the case that, you know, the... The f- I wasn't shocked by any means by the food. I think it was pretty standard fare for, again, what we'd call institutional food, right? But again, that he was suffering from um, an inflammation disease. And I noticed that some of the food that he was being served was, um, for, uh, my understanding, was pro-inflammatory. Uh, yeah, making it was the- making it him 
worse. Right. So they were mainly concerned with him being able to get it in. As in right. Being what able they to told me it. was they're mostly concerned with making sure that that he was getting enough food. So anyway, it's um really interesting, expansive uh, conversation mm-hmm. that we're gonna try to uh, keep focused. Yes. Um, because obviously, so much to discuss. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's a lot. So maybe we should get into it. Okay. So where are we going to pick up the discussion? Because as you said, it was a big one. Yeah. So where should we start? Uh, We're going to start with Lulu outlining how our relationship with food has changed as we've become more reliant on processed foods and what some of the the impacts have been from this reliance. All right. So this is Brian speaking with Lulu Cohen-Farnell and David Farnell of Real Food for Real Kids. So for me, there, there are many impacts. Uh, one of the big impact is the uh, disconnection with, with real food, with what, uh, you know, what is real food and, and what is the purpose of real food, uh, which is you know, being um, fuel for life, for energy, for you know, whether it's physical energy, mental energy, um, all the disease that are associated with um, all these you know, highly processed food. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you're sick and then you get pills. And so it's, it's kind of this never-ending um, uh, health, you know, negative health impact. So I'd add another thing that comes. So what Lulu was talking about was the, the stuff that you read in the newspapers and that we're aware of the negative health outcomes and the cycle of dependence that the um, medical interventions are required. And there's all kinds of really bad uh, outcomes when people choose processed foods over real foods on a regular basis. The other piece to this is the unintended consequences when you're doing this with children. Little little babies into toddlers, into preschoolers, which is what Real Food for Real Kids focuses on. When those little palates are introduced, palate meaning the mouth, when those little, when those little, um, ex- when the, when those little babies' experiences are filled with processed foods, whether it's a formula that's got tons of sugar in it, or if it's, um, you know, instead of real fruit, it, it is canned fruit, or if instead of, um, uh, you know, real chicken, it's chicken nuggets with all that fat and salt. Or plastic cheese instead of real cheese. All of those things create a false impression in that child for what that food ought to be and what it ought to taste right. like. It sets an expe- expectation level. Right. Not, and not we have an expectation level not only in uh, quality, but also even in appearance and consistency. Mm-hmm. Like we have right. come to expect that this thing will taste like this always, no matter what. That's mm-hmm. right. There's also the, the cultural aspect of, of uh, you know, highly processed food and how um, it, it became almost a culture to, to eat processed food. Right. It's so ingrained in, in you right. know, kids now can recognize, you know, brands of cereals and mm-hmm. things like that, but they can't recognize vegetables. So we're, we're talking about losing the culture of foods right. here to, you know, to this convenient culture of food where, you know, kids recognize, you know, cheese string and they don't know when they see real cheese that smells like right. cheese, they don't want to touch it because it feels foreign to them because they haven't been used to um, uh, uh, being exposed to those different flavors. So it, it becomes really uh, uh, mono-flavored uh, mono uh, yeah. as opposed to be multi-flavored and multicultural. It, it, it's redu- Again, we, you know, we can talk about reduction here as well mm-hmm. in terms of taste, in terms of openness, uh, and definitely in terms of you know, real connection to, to, to uh, right. our roots. I want to talk about uh, institutional food and, and 
the connection to me is, to that is basically uh, that there are challenges when it comes to feeding a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what are some of the challenges that you face when we're talking about food for daycare or hospital or penitentiary or when, when any time we're feeding a lot of people in a short period of time? What are some of the challenges? I was asked to be on the um, University Health Network's uh, local food task force. They were trying to figure out how do we bring in more healthy and local foods into the hospital food system. So I was able to sit on this on this panel for a year and meet multiple times with all these stakeholders and get a really, really good view into what some of the operational and institutional and budgetary challenges that are faced. Um, and what I can say is that everybody that I met, saw, interacted with, they're all good people. They wanted to do the best. Their hands and feet were tied by not just budget. You'd see budget, but you'd also see these unintended consequences of labor negotiations. Like, for example, um, with, I don't know the exact history of it or specifics, but I just know that nurses can't help patients eat. They can't open up that carton of milk or put the straw in that orange juice even, let alone bring fork to mouth. Because they can't do that, because of some historic labor issues, if you don't have a family member in that hospital helping you with your two broken arms to eat, the next thing that's going to happen is you're going to be intubated. You may have to start eating with IV. So there are all these really weird things that go on inside these institutional, I think that was a labor issue. But unfortunately, the health outcomes are, are what we are looking at in the, in the nutrition. So what happens there is they've got really low budgets, but they've also got labor restrictions. And they've also got infrastructure restrictions. And they, system. Yes. They pulled the kitchens system. out. So, I mean, food isn't just food, right? Food is sourcing. Food is cooking. Food is uh, portioning and delivering. Food is managing its temperatures, making sure that it's at, at, at safe temperatures, whether above or below the required numbers. Um, and then you have to consider patients, um, you know, palatability. Do they like it or do they not? And and um, and that and how do you assess whether something's successful or not? Is it because the patient said they liked it or they didn't like it? Now now we're back over to the um, what did you, how'd you make them like it or not? Did you put the sugar, salt, and fat in it to make them like it? So I mean, it's it's really complex issues. There's so many of these things. There's also um, to add on to what David just said, the issue of you know then comes, of course patients' uh, preferences uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to diet. Uh, right. You know, there are people who are vegetarians, and then there's religious obligations uh, with diet sometimes. Right. Um, allergies consideration. Uh, there is also the issue of, um, um, you know, David mentioned palatability, but um, what can a patient eat? So depending on, 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 you know, the actual ability to eat. So right. if you've had, I don't know, a throat Which might be temporary and maybe right. changing even, right? But right. if you have, like, say, you know, you can't swallow or something like that, then they will give you something that's easy and gives you the most nutrients in the littlest amount required because they know you're having a hard time swallowing or you can't really digest or whatever it is. So they're going to try to give you something like... Uh, you know, that's easy. And, and a lot of the times you'd see jello, for example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, right. where's the nutrient in jello? There's no nutrient. There's colorant. Yeah. There's bad stuff in there. There's a lot of insure, and there's a lot of boost and, and things like right. that that right. Are, is happening at, at hospitals. And that's so the, why. Because there's, right. you know, and there's then there's, of course, a puree of real fruits and vegetables might be way better. They can swallow it easily. Easy. There's lots of nutrients, et cetera, et cetera. If you add flax seeds and good oils and all that, and all of a sudden you've got a cocktail of health. 
However, why aren't they able to do that? It's not that expensive. It's not that difficult. They probably have the machines to do it. You need a blender. However, it's not done. And, 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 and we've been looking into this. We've been participating, both David and I, in conversations and panels. And there is a task force right now uh, that have been formed that's called Nourish, um, that is trying to figure out um, how do we bring better food to hospitals and to, uh, you know, inpatient and people who, you know, kids that are in hospital for long term, that kind of stuff. They are trying very hard to understand from a uh, hospital point of view, how are the system working? What are the roadblocks? How can this change? And it's they're big machines, they're big, it's really difficult to make changes. Oh, the systems. So the systems that they're using in order to figure out what patients can have and can't have, and right. you know, they kind of put in all their information and then it says, oh, this patient, because of all the conditions and all the restrictions, this is what they're gonna eat. Right. And it's very restrictive and, and a reductionist. And they don't have a lot of choices, so it, it's it's a very complex issue mm -hmm. that there it, it's been it's been in the works and it's been tackled for many years. Well, what's interesting about mm -hmm. that is that they are collecting a lot of data about each um, patient, mm -hmm. and so there is the potential to turn that data and really customize it. But like you say, too often it's sort of the same solution, so it's sort of a blanket solution as opposed to something that's truly customized. So I want to I want to get back to that. I want to get back to how technology is influencing the mm -hmm. industry. But I think we need to back up and just maybe give a state of the address. What is the state of food in institutions and specifically mm -hmm. in hospitals right mm -hmm. now? So mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of like healing component in, in, in light, in sound, in all of this. And a lot of hospitals in the US, or a few hospitals I should say, not a lot, have started to consider this and have invested in this because they also know and they've realized and you know it's not the lack of study that the better the environment people are not going to stay in the hospital because the environment is great oh i like the music i'm going to stay a week longer they want to go home they want to be with their family if they eat food some people are saying oh if we give good food and yummy food to to patients maybe they're going to stay longer no they're not going to stay longer they're going to heal faster and they're going to get out of the hospital faster so it's just a paradigm shift that needs to happen and i think it's you know the, the this is this is starting to happen in in some hospitals it's not the majority, unfortunately. Um, you know, nurses' home is the same people who don't have a choice and have to go to um, uh, nursery homes. They they are not in control of what they are given to eat, and uh, this is a, a very sad thing because I I think that from birth to end of end of life, we should all have access to real food. We should all have access to delicious healthy, nutritious foods. Why? Many reasons. Um, it, it's, it works better for the system, better public health, uh, less cost for everybody. But also, you know, just considering, uh, I spoke about culture earlier, just the pleasure, the pleasure that we find in eating good food. Um, it makes us happier. It definitely makes us better and feel better. So this this, this whole aspect that is kind of like... Uh, not looked at in terms of, um, you know, what do we feed our patients so that they feel better, they heal faster, they're happier, and, and, and we can be more efficient in our healing process. Yeah, so this is um, great to have this interview in this way because Lulu brings the philosophical and values um, perspective to it, and I can try to uh, illuminate something of the practical nature of why we got where we got to and institutional um, 
feeding. Essentially, you have all these... One of the things that, that, that um, economics punishes is duplication. And it's very expensive to maintain full kitchens at every single one of your institutional locations. Sometime in the 50s and 60s in Europe, they started to realize that um, their labor budgets were much higher than their food budgets and that they needed to get a hold of this. So they shifted over. I think it was really in earnest started in the 70s, the shift into the 80s with with a technique called cook chill. And what cook chill allowed um, for was a long, longer, much longer shelf life with produced food because of the speed with which it was chilled after cooking it. So if you can really quickly chill the food after you've cooked it, you can get several weeks of shelf life, safe, uh, low microbial development food, so in the food uh, over a period of time. That allows you to have a central commissary. That one large central commissary can then ship any time um, of the day large amounts of bulk foods to uh, the, the various hospitals or, or long-term care ins- or institutional areas, which then no longer need full kitchens. Now what all they need is retherm kitchens, which simply portion, control, and heat, and then distribute in ward. Much, much less labor required at the hospital, far less of an ongoing maintenance and investment in infrastructure, in the equipment, in modernizing, and also in liability. They're able to move the liability off back to someplace outside of the hospital if, there's, if there are issues with manufacturing. So a lot, of, a lot of hospitals followed suit. As a matter of fact, I think almost all hospitals seem to have followed suit with this. You, when, when you're run in a way with budgets always tight and you need that next machine that goes ping, back to the Monty Python stuff, you, know, you need these medical equipment and all these devices and that stuff's expensive. And you don't pay these people small amounts of money. You know, these doctors, these nurses, all these folks, they, yeah. you know, they're expensive. Mm-hmm. So with that, hospital administrators are constantly looking to trim budgets where they can. Unfortunately, the long-term consequences of bad diets don't show up on your doorstep. It comes down the line. That's where the Ministry of Health Promotion has a problem. Or long-term, you know, the long-term health versus the immediate health. And this is where the trade-off starts to begin. Mm-hmm. So here we have kitchens being ripped out of hospitals in favor of re-therm, full kitchens being ripped out in favor of retherm kitchens, big savings, big savings on much less labor, less equipment to maintain, et cetera. But what they gave up was self-determination, was variety, was the ability to cook fresh from scratch, which is what you need if you're going to get a local supply chain. Because when you outsource your food to a cook chill operation, they're getting the cheapest stuff they can get. That large-scale cook chill operation is also feeding jails, also feeding um, you know other large large-scale low-budget institutional feeding, and so with that comes cheapest beef you can find, the cheapest uh, vegetables and fruit you can find, avoiding complexity um, in favor of the lowest possible um, price of production, and that's part of the backstory on why f- hospital foods right. where it is today. Right. It's also, uh, you know, what David said is true, but it's also the 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 um, the accessibility. So cooked chill can be amazing, like he said, to um, to be able to keep uh, to give a long term shelf and 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 long term taste and you know, all that kind of stuff. So there are um, opportunities, and it's it's changing. And it was what happened in daycare when we started. Um, uh, serving food in childcare centers way back in 2004, they didn't have a choice as per you know what kind of food they could choose. They, there was a, a number of caterers on the market. 
but um, they were experiencing, um, I guess what I call a, um, again, reduced opportunity to choose the right food for the kids because they didn't exist. Because everybody that was catering to kids at the time before we uh, came onto this marketplace was um, super low budget, um, lowest food cost possible to maximize profit. Also because those companies were not in the business of feeding children because they cared about the kids' health, but because they just were a business. And so it, it was a commodity. And, and, and that's the problem with food today is that it became a commodity. And by choosing, um, or, you know, by not, it's, I don't know if hospitals, you know, hospitals, it's like when they have this um, system that they're into and they're used to it and it's, it's really hard to get out of it. So again, paradigm shift, right. realization that it needs to change and that there is a better system that can help both patients and hospitals to do better, uh, improving their, their cost, improving the health of their patient. And in childcare centers, um, now people have a choice. They can choose good food at a, a very affordable price, which is what we offer, or they can choose less good food, also at a very affordable price, but you pay the consequences lower, right. lower but like lower of 20 cents, something mm -hmm. like that, and uh, per day, per kid. And, and then you choose your, they choose this lower cost uh, not really realizing that they're going to pay later. Right. So like David said, they have budgets and and sometimes they cut on food costs because that's right. the easiest thing to do. So I want to go into that, that decision that's made and I know you can, can't speak for what you know hospital administrators are, are thinking when they make decisions like this, but it seems there's two things and maybe they go together. One is it's a line item on a budget, just like doctors and salaries are, mm -hmm. but it is just like the aesthetic uh, of the hospital would be a budget, right? Mm -hmm. There's a budget, but there's also, um, Lulu, you talked about um, food as a, the healing component of food, food as medicine. Is the decision to cut that, that uh, cost down, is it a budgetary decision or is it the hospital saying, we don't see food as medicine, we see food as food? Uh, there's the, absolutely. I think it's a bit of both, and let me just say that um, it's not just because something was cooked and rapidly chilled doesn't mean it's bad, right? right. That's actually a good thing. You can. If and you I, have I a do good, want to talk about <clears throat> cook yeah. chill. Yeah. Yeah, cook chill is amazing. Um, the issue is what you're trying to solve for, and if you identify if if you if you're trying to solve for something and and you're not actually solving that problem, you're actually creating other problems. I think it's it's an opportunity to reflect on this. So I think one of the interesting contradictions that I heard. In that year-long or year-and-a-half-long process that I was involved with, and I still I still try to keep uh, keep tabs on on where things are gonna are gonna go because we obviously want to help. Um, but we we heard we heard that the dietitians and the nutritionists who are quite frustrated with everything. They said, you know, these guys aren't really these. The, the motivation is to get food into their bodies into, into the patients' bodies so they get their strength up so they get out fast. We're not here to change their eating habits. I think the conversations came up around, well, a lot of these folks have negative health outcomes because of a really poor diet, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, and here they are. And now you're just going to send them back out into the world, and they're going to go back to the 7-Eleven and get their Slurpees, right. and they're going to be back here six months. you didn't show them. Later. You didn't take that opportunity, right. exactly. maybe, to not just heal right. them, but... Show them. Right. Oh, hey! By the way, you can eat like this. It's good for you. Not only do you feel better, it tastes good too. So what they did over at the Princess Margaret Hospital was create the Elixir Kitchen, and yes. it was amazing. This yes. great chef, fantastic guy named Jeremy, is over there, and they do great work helping 
train people to cook better for themselves. It's a it's a it's a post cancer uh, focus so yes. that people can yeah. can right. You know, you're familiar with the this. Survivor's Kitchen. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and and there's a lot of initiatives around North America with this kind of approach. The th- the thing the contradiction here is that the the hospitals don't feel that they're in the business of trying to change people's diets. They're just trying to get them out the door as fast right. as they can. So as many calories as go in as possible will hopefully get their strength up and out faster. The problem is the food's gross. Nobody wants to drink, nobody wants to eat it. It's the problem there is is also because doctors every doctor, it doesn't matter if they're specialized or not, they're not trained in nutrition. Right. They have four hours in nutrition in their entire curriculum, which is years and years of studies. They have no idea how to feed themselves. They have no idea about nutrition. That's why they hire nutritionists and dietitian. However, they don't have the last word. And certainly, if doctors were more aware, better educated, and whether they're in hospitals or not, like Hippocrates said, like food, you know, food is your medicine. And, but doctors don't think like that anymore. They're more, they're more trained to... Pharma is your medicine. You know, pharma, pharmaceutical education than they are in, in, in nutrition education. And, and this is where, you know, when you go back to the source, this is where the, the problem is. Because if every doctor knew and, 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 and was trained in nutrition and understood how the body really functions with food and what are the inflammatory foods. And, and even good food can be inflammatory, like tomatoes and nightshades can be inflammatory to some people when you have inflammation issues, right? So they don't know these things. They don't tell patients who have celiac, you know, avoid this and that and also avoid this other thing. Or if you have like, you know, they will give you pills. And so the problem also is at the source. And if doctors were trained in nutrition, I think that even the, the whole, you know, the, the, the entire um, landscape of, of, of medicine, and whether it's in hospitals in, or in, in you know, doctor's practices, um, would be completely different. People would be healing way faster. And, you know, same idea in schools. Why don't we have nutrition education in schools? Why don't we have food literacy in schools? Kids understanding. It's a life skill. We're eating every day, several times a day. You know, it used to be a skill that was passed on from generation to generation, you know, grandparents to parents, etc. The world has changed. The food landscape has changed. Uh, there's a lot of food product, not real food per se. And a lot of people have no idea how to cook anymore. They have no idea that food can heal or can kill. And um, there's a lot of misunderstanding. And, and uh, food education, it's it's always going back to that food education changing policies whether they're in hospitals whether it's in the Canadian food guide in schools uh, any kind of institutions that can that can help people um, you know feel better with food and teach them how to and I, I think this is one of the big source of the issue is that is the disconnection completely with mm-hmm. with with ourselves uh, mm-hmm. as human being and, and 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 real food well and I think that disconnection isn't doesn't sound like it's unique to hospitals no. no, or schools, right? It's It goes to even if you're saying that they receive so little education, yeah. it even goes there. Totally. Right? And again, uh, thinking about the healthcare, how our healthcare is set up, and some things that are fully covered under all of them, some things That's that right. are not, there, it, there's an impact there as That's well. Right. And then there's money, too. And there's money too. The sugar lobby is right? massive. So exactly, right, right. right? So you're not only exactly, and the, and that uh, right. we're talking about influencing uh, legislation or government action that may lead to yeah, 
Look at the food Someone guide. With the deepest pockets, mm -hmm. right. benefiting most. Yes. Right, right. The, the Canadian exactly. food guide was, up until today, really, uh, you know, heavily uh, influenced by, by, by the food lobbyists. Uh, and, and it was more industry driven. Uh, right. And it was a guide for, you know, how to feed the industry bottom line, rather than a guide on how to feed the Canadians better yes. food and how to keep their population healthy and, and happy and not obese. And right. we, you know, when you see that we have one one child out of three today that is either obese or, or overweight, and that continues into adulthood, this is worrisome mm -hmm. because it is not a preventative um, um, system. System, and certainly there's a lack of awareness or a lack of willingness. I'm not sure. Uh, like David said, a lot of pressure from from you know different institutes, the Sugar Institute. A lot of the corporations have created conglomerates and associations of all kinds to put pressure on the governments, and there's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, and this year, I think, uh, I think it's going to be for 2018, I'm not sure the, the date exact, but exactly, that the, so the Canadian Food Guide has been, um, is, is, will be revised, and there has been, like, there is always a public consultation. And they had found that, uh, of course, it's, it's not, um, you know, not everybody knows that there's a public consultation. It's always like that with the public consultation. You only know if you're in the know, which is kind of strange. But uh, this time, it, they had the most, they had a, a massive amount of feedback from the public, whether it was the dietitians or groups like us. We gave feedback. We said, this is what you need to do. I liked to give right. the example of the Brazilian food guide, which is an excellent food guide mm -hmm. uh, for health, not for industry health, but for people's health. And um, so we were involved in the revision of the Canadian Food Guides in 2012. I was at a table. Um, and uh, now they've decided that they didn't want, so we're industry, but we are the good guys. And um, now they decided that they, in, in order to not you know, skew the, the food guide, they, they were not going to invite industry right. at the table. And they're going to be dietitian and public health and doctors and but no industry. But if you want, if you want my, I'm think doctors are industry. I mean, I'm sorry, but mm -hmm. they are industry because they're really, really linked to the pharmaceutical industry. So they're super influenced, and they are going to be there. And I'm sure there's going to be some doctors, again, who don't know anything about nutrition, uh, that will be, you know, um, heavily uh, influencing. But the guide. Are changing. But it's changing, are changing and they've, and they've listened yes, this because time. Because we've so. seen now, mm -hmm. I feel like it's not only us. Right. Now it's beginning to be our children. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe that was the wake up. People needed to go, okay, time, time to address this, because those kids are supposed to look after us right. later. Right. right. And They're that may not happen. Now, right? so, so things are, are getting addressed. You want and don't get me that. wrong. I'm not saying every doctor doesn't know anything about right. nutrition. Yeah. There are some doctors that are very aware and, are, and, and that are, you know, changing the world around them mm -hmm. uh, by educating others and their mm -hmm. peers. So, you know, we've seen that happen too. The young doctors that are, that are coming in now, Absolutely. I think young people in general are more aware um, of the negative impacts. Mm -hmm. um, but, and I want to get to where you, uh, where we are, which is basically talking about feeding yeah. in hospitals and specifically to children and the importance of uh, starting at that age right. to not only teach show the children, but perhaps to educate families. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that has an opportunity. Can you talk about that? Sure. So, you know, we, we, we know that, you know, eating real food and, you know, the right fuel at a very young age, as early as possible, is the way to go, as often as possible, daily, ideally. You eat real food, then you, you might be in good shape later on. 
this is what we've been trying to do is, you know, uh, providing real food to childcare centers. So now you have babies as young as two or three months that are in a childcare center mm -hmm. and they spend six, seven years of their life there. We've, we've seen the impact of our food on kids, uh, you know, from testimonials from parents who've had previous um, uh, experience with kids in daycare and then they had this kid in daycare with our food, uh, with real food, and they could see the difference between their older kids and what they're eating and their eating habits, maybe because at home they didn't have great eating habits and then there was kind of, you know, an awareness that happened and then the second kid got into a childcare center that we served our food. And like you said, the family um, uh, also was impacted in terms of, oh, you know, what am I feeding my family now? And, and discovering that, you know, real food is better than convenient food and processed food and, and that kind of stuff. Are, are and recipes. And very often that's a very common thing. Did I Partially, I think, to show parents, this is everything that's in it. That's make right. Sure you know, but there's another. Maybe I don't know. Maybe that's another one of those unintended consequences, a positive consequence, where you're literally showing people. By the way, here's you can piece together a recipe book mm -hmm. off of what we're what we're feeding. Absolutely. The interesting thing about mm -hmm. this is that there are so many things that are just absolute basics. Talking about Lulu um, and that 2012 con uh, consulting process on the food guide, she came home and, uh, after one of these meetings and she said, I can't believe this. I literally put my hand up and said, oh, I don't see water listed anywhere on here. Yes. And it was like, wait a minute, we're talking about revising for the better the diet that's recommended for Canadians to consume and we're not even talking about water. Yeah, there was no water mentioned. You know, it was all the liquid and milk was first, of course. Because there's and a lobby then, for you know, milk. Soy milk and then... <laughs> And then uh, juice, the mm -hmm. uh, but there was no water mentioned, you know, how much water should I drink per day? So, yeah, that was, that was kind of funny. I can also um, throw in one more sort of interesting challenge to this whole thing. I, I think listeners will, will um, get a kick out of, of, of the complexity of it because, I mean, if you think about it, humans are amazing. Like, we do the most incredible things but we miss the most obvious and simple things, you know? And, and there's this notion, Lulu used the word a couple of times, reductive. There's this reductive thinking, the, syn the synthesizing. We think that we're so smart. We figured out the active ingredient. We know right. the, um, you know, whatever the, the most important piece is. And so let's pull that out and then let, let's, let's treat that as, as, as if it's the magic bullet. And it never is. It's always the context. It's always the whole forest. It's never mm -hmm. the tree. Mm -hmm. It's not the vitamin C in the orange. It's the orange. Yes. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's hilarious. And yeah. so that's what we real food is. We think we're smarter is. than nature. That's right. Really? We try to outsmart yes. nature and we get bitten every single time. Yes. Oh, I see what you did. I pulled out that. I know how to create that. <laughs> exactly. I can turn that into a powder. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and so now you think about in this endless quest to reduce prices... Right. So, you know, whether it's reducing price, because if you have a lower price, you have more of a market and you'll have more consumers and people will buy your stuff if you drop those prices. That's a constant phrase because everyone's looking for the lowest possible dollar. Mm -hmm. Well, in doing that, the baby's tossed out with the bathwater because so many corners get cut that you lose the essential, uh, the, the essential nutritional uh, impact of the thing you're eating because it's been turned into this, this crazy Frankenfood. Yeah. We've been playing God for a long time and it's been with... Um, human selection of attributes that please us, not what nature would have done to strengthen that, right. that element. You know, and that, that's, that's the, um, you know, industrial, you know, the creation mm -hmm. of all these different foods and the marketing and the advertising and maybe a bit of religion, you know, who knows what, and it right. feels like it's normal, but it's not that normal. 
So there is all these industrial uh, beliefs or, you know, deeply, deeply um, influenced by marketing, you know, years of marketing, mm -hmm. uh, images and subliminal, you know, influences. The experience you had yourself. Sure. Experience you, know, you had marketing yourself. Marketing and advertising led you to love Heinz beans or craft mm -hmm. dinner. Right, and it's ingrained but in you, it's in your memory, of, it's in your olfactive memory. Oh, it brings it's back memories of your parents mm -hmm. and, and happy yes. childhood. Remind, remind you have to have uh, craft yeah. dinner right. one box in the house. It's just a safety blanket, really. Right, right, right. right? It's or, bomb shelter food. Sure, but it's your memory right? of university. Yes, you know, it's, but every now and then you go... I mean... And that's weird that it's still there, even when you know better. And you sort of talked about right. the smart guy, dumb guy thing, mm -hmm. I like to call it, where... We're so intelligent, and a lot of people are like that, and they always have gaping holes that are, are blind spots, and right. this is a real uh, well, blind spot. You Absolutely. know, an interesting example about, you know, subliminal uh, advertisement or, or even like, uh, you know, unattended consequences is, you know, kids in daycare centers, you know, that we visited sometimes would be playing with boxes, would, would be playing cooking mm -hmm. with boxes of, you know, Fruit Loops and other, you know, junk food, mm -hmm. cans of this and whatever, and they think that that that's cooking, right? So they would collect those those mm -hmm. those card boxes and and microwave and all that stuff, and they would teach the kids how to cook and say, "Oh, I'm cooking," and then you know we witnessed it, and you'd see the kid, mm -hmm. the little kids in daycare, taking the box of Fruit Loops, and it's this is all in their face. Yeah. So for them, they grow up with all these things, mm -hmm. and that becomes the norm. So I want to get back to um, mm -hmm. uh, food and hospitals again, and sure. we talked. I think we understand, we should understand by now how this can be a better way, serving real food, mm -hmm. right? But again, there, we outlined there's a lot of those challenges that exist, mm -hmm. right? So how, are, and how do you navigate that and um, is it possible to stay within those confines and still serve uh, real food or do we still have to make compromises? Yeah, no, I absolutely, you can. And the way you do it is through the same market forces that, that get us the good stuff, can get us the right. bad stuff. And the good stuff is really a function of finding the efficiencies in the way that you're organizing yourself. So we, for example, feed something like 15,000 kids every day with either a snack or a lunch or a lunch and snack or two snacks and a lunch, various combinations thereof. Uh, and we do that because we make one main menu. Yes, there are some allergy replacement meals and, and certain uh, special special meals and special needs diets that we can cater to, but that's a small percentage. Basically, it's like the GO train. That train can carry a lot of people mm -hmm. a long distance for a very small amount of money because they're not doing all these ancillary things. They're not stopping off to pick you up at your house. They're not waiting, idling while you go to the ATM. You want that stuff? Get a taxi. You're going to pay five times the amount. And there's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. So there are efficiencies to be to be sought through certain manufacturing approaches to keep and the level of quality as well. Yeah, not for the point of cutting corners, but mm -hmm. for the right. for the point of, of uh, eliminating Adding. duplication. Right. So, so you're making one thing. Right. We're not making 27 different lunches. That's We're right. making one lunch today. That's right. And tomorrow we'll It'll make be a different, a different one. one. That's right. And well, that's, there's, there's two versions because we do do, yes. you know, uh, you vegetarian yep. and non Sure. Well, two main things. So you're either, in our world, you're either an omnivore or an herbivore. 
and then you can obviously have some dietary restrictions. You you must have dietary restrictions uh, considered when when you're catering to these populations. So uh, with the, that herbivore and that omnivore, everyone's still going to eat the same vegetable and the same fruit and the same mm -hmm. grain, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. And so with that comes really fantastic efficiencies, which allow us to to produce a lot of food, a very high quality with really high quality local ingredients for a price that's simple that's similar to our competitors. Our competitors have a much simpler kitchen, but it's more expensive for them to operate. Their food costs more. So chicken nuggets cost more than chicken. The challenge, you then have to cook that chicken. You have to right. cut it, you have to spice it, you have to marinate it, you have to have employ people, you have to have more complex ovens or, or kettles or skillets or various cooking mm -hmm. uh, devices. You probably then have to blast chill it or, and then you have to reportion it. Like there's all kinds of different things you have to do once that makes that chicken nugget at the end of the day cheaper than the chicken after you factor right. everything in, yeah. okay? So initially, the chicken nugget costs more than the chicken, but by the time you're done making it into a right. meal, all you did with the chicken nugget was heat it up in a simple convection oven. The mm -hmm. chicken, you had to do all this extra work to and employ people to do it. So at the end of the day, um, it can be cheaper to use just processed food. The issue is scale. At small scale, that, that, that's... And long-term health. In long, it, yeah, and, and also as you, as you get bigger and as you grow, those chicken nuggets are still gonna cost the same amount they're still gonna be expensive. Right. And what's the, what's the health outcome? What's the actual value being delivered? How much chicken is there in that kilogram? Actually, very little. Right. There's a lot of other stuff but in there. But they're not concerned about the contents. They are concerned with the, num the energy number. That's right. The they're kilojoules or the Exactly, calories, the right? calories. Well, they're concerned with the grams, the cost per gram, yes. or whatever it is, the cost per portion, and we back to cost again. Do you think there's a cost per calorie <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up because in most be in most um, uh, guides that we have to follow, regulations for childcare centers are different than school regulations when it comes to criteria and food. There's no regulation that talks about quality. Yes. There's no quality requirement whatsoever, whether it's hospitals, right. childcare centers, school, name it. As long it. as you're not making anyone sick. You're sick them. in the long term, yeah, or like killing them right away as they're eating yeah. the food. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, you're you're, you're safe. Clinical sickness. That's right. Sickness that's right. That's right. To step in. So because there is there is causality. no there is no regulation for quality, and right. this is so wrong, and that's also where we're trying to have an impact is changing policy so that yeah. you know but this still, this is taken into effect. There are efficiencies that can be made with right. scale. Absolutely. This right. is something that can exist on a larger scale, and things like you mentioned, like cook chill. That's a technology or a, a technique or whatever. Yep. So there's innovation. There's, well. a, there's a lot of innovation that, I, that is required. There's, yes. there's a lot of investment that is required mm -hmm. in terms of equipment uh, and, and the willingness to, to, to want to get out of that system, that sick yeah. system. How's technology influencing? Oh, it's huge. Technology, uh, well, this is a technology, right, this, this cook chill notion. But also, I guess what, what I was trying to, to get to with the notion of the chicken nugget versus the chicken is that at, the, at, at a certain scale, the chicken nugget is the option. Is the way right. it, makes, it makes sense to do that. Yeah, but as, as you increase your volumes and as you get bigger and you can pay for that oven multiple, you can turn that oven over multiple times or right. the kettle, whatever it happens to be, I think it can actually be cheaper to just buy the right. raw, buy, buy the chicken. And that's nugget. just taking food as an... an an item there, right. and leaving it, not ignoring whatever long-term effects there may be, positive or negatively, of serving chicken nuggets or right. chicken. I think right. that's also back to your earlier point about the doctors and the and the predict and the, and the prescriptive nature of food is they don't consider it to be um, the medicine that we right. do. It's because you don't see a direct cause and effect. They can't. Right. They don't draw a direct not... link between this diet and mm -hmm. this outcome. 
they just it, it's it's just it's not it's not factored in and I think that's mm-hmm. science that's the reductive nature of science really focusing on the things that they can control for but totally ignorant to the synergies of all these things that you have to test for because it's the interactions of all this stuff that actually has the has the output it's not the one thing you're studying it's yeah. the, it's all of these influences also perhaps the other side is that is that um, you're interested in compliance as a doctor right so if yeah. I prescribe you a pill mm-hmm. that you have to walk across the hall to get that will be cost you almost nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I can pretty much guarantee that you're going to have high compliance on that. Right. If I say, yep. cut out gluten yep. for a month, what is the expected uh, compliance and, on that? And why is that? Yeah. And yeah. for me, and not just for me, is that you know there are addictions when it comes to food. So yes. it's way harder for somebody to uh, quit sugar. Uh, or quit gluten, for that matter, or meat, because they are addictive substances. Mm -hmm. And so people don't want to do that because there will be an withdrawal effect, and the doctors, just because the way the system is, they only only have so many minutes to spend with you. They can't coach you through this. So you're all alone doing your, your, you know, your detox by yourself, unless you see a naturopath, but that costs more money, and it's unsupportive, you know, and you, you got yourself into this, or... Life got yourself into this, and you don't even know you're addicted. When you t- tell people, oh, you're addicted to sugar, like people know, they say, oh, I need this, I have a sugar crave, or I have, you know, I need a piece of cake or whatever. This is an addiction, but it's not taken seriously. That's one of a number of, of challenges that you're facing, but like we see, it does seem mm-hmm. that things are starting to change. You do start to see again, um, people become more interested Again, maybe this is just the appearance of it, mm-hmm. but it does seem to be more out there. People paying more attention to what's in their food, people caring about that a little bit more, uh, people trying to get a closer relationship with food. But I want to end with asking about people, individual people, families, what they can do. Because let's say I'm bought in. I like the sounds of all of this. I agree food is medicine. I agree food is a building block. I agree I have to teach my children from a young age and take interest in myself and how I'm eating, what I'm eating. Um, what can they, what can they do uh, to continue themselves and the population in that direction? Well, first, let, let me hop in. I think Lulu's going to have a more interesting and better answer. But first thing is, what you, the way you set that up is, uh, whoever has come to that conclusion is already really far along the line. When you uh, embrace this notion of real food and this notion of local food and this notion of eating as close to the natural condition of this food as possible, you're you're simply going to feel better about it. You're going to feel better. You're going to you're going to lose weight. You're going to um, you're going to feel like you're in more control of of your life. And I think um, that's can't be understated. People can do it. I think if if it's a budgetary issue, eat less meat. Meat's very expensive. You don't necessarily get the best bang for your buck by eating beef. You don't. You'd get much more for your family's dollar with pulses like lentils and and brown rice. You know these things are great. Even just a couple nights a week. If people reduced a percentage of their meat consumption down or replaced it with healthy whole grains, and healthy legumes and much more healthy vegetables, um, they'll have a smaller grocery bill and no health bill, <laughs> right. medical bill coming down the line. Well, it's, he pre- David pretty much summarized it. It's, you know, 
why eating local food? Because you're closer to the farms. You know, you, you can go visit the farms and see what their practices are. You can meet the farmers and ask them questions. And, uh, you know, in, involving your kids in the kitchen and going to the farmer's market. Um, growing your own food. You can grow your own, your own grains, your own microgreens, your own. These are very nutritious. Uh, they're easy to grow. Uh, they're fun. You know, kids would love doing that. Kids love anything that they can see grow and transform. So you can you can you can just like create the effort around, you know, the 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 the, the sacred notion of of what food is for us. Whether is, you know, it's it's a cultural thing. It's um, it's a social thing. It creates health and well-being, uh, you feel better, you, you, you can perform better, whether it's you know a physical performance that we're talking about or a mental performance that we're talking about. So encouraging kids to um, uh, be in touch with food, touching food, seeing good food, have bowls of fruits and vegetables in your house visible to the kids, create that environment that's healthy, where instead of seeing boxes, they see real food everywhere. They will be more inclined to eat it than if it's not at home. Get rid of the crap at home. Don't have the junk food at home. Um, and, you know, involve your kids. And, uh, you know, if you go out to restaurant, then go to good restaurant that care about what they're, eating, they're feeding their, uh, their patrons. Lulu, David, thank you so much. I thank really you. appreciate it. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks thank so much. Thank you so, so much. much. Yeah. That was Brian in conversation with Lulu Cohen-Farnell and David Farnell, partners and owners of Real Food for Real Kids here in Toronto. Yeah, we went there. <laughs> we went everywhere. I know. It's so crazy because it's like, I mean, if you told me that we're going to talk about hospital food, that doesn't sound like a very interesting topic to me. <laughs> I'll be quite honest. But then to hear people who, you know, are just speaking real, like I'm done pretending that this isn't uh, a really important basic right. thing. Like that's the thing that drives me crazy and why you can get really, I can get really fired up about it is because we're pretending that this is strange when this is really normal and this is what should be normal and this is what we should expect and we should be starting from this place. It just makes me think that we've been so lazy to like want to be able to freeze stuff and throw it in the microwave when it's time to serve it instead of like preparing food that's going to make for healthy kids and then back to the original, like to healthy patients. Like we live in a country where we have to pay for our healthcare. It's like- Why wouldn't we care more about yeah, this? It's, it's just, anyway, yeah. it's refreshing. Yeah, and it's, what's I think refreshing to me is that things are changing. And yes. these are the people that these are These are the people it, that are doing it. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like we talked to Glenford Jameson about Canada's Food Guide mm -hmm. and that process of people being pulled in, stakeholders being pulled in. And Lulu was part of that. David's part of a, a, a group at UHN talking about food in hospitals. Mm -hmm. It's good to see. Again, this is what happens when you pull these people into the, 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 the conversation and they can, you know, they don't have uh, a corporation that they're representing where, again, the only thing they're making, they're there to do is make sure that their piece of the pie is still big enough that, yeah. you know, they're protected, but they're actually looking out for public health That's which the is the name of the game and they're, they're the ones that are saying hey i have no vested interest in water but shouldn't we make sure that we're telling people that it's healthy to drink water exactly it's seems obvious <laughs> right but like you say like it's exactly it's time to 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 call it like it is and, and say that we need to to make changes and 
that's one part of it is 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 saying we need to make changes but again i think it's these are such big systems mm-hmm. right um like i think it's unrealistic to think that you know hospitals are all of a sudden overnight going to be putting back full kitchens sure. in their it, it, you know it just Maybe it'll happen eventually, but mm-hmm. I don't think that's the next step. No. The next step is what can we do within the system? So it's interesting to see how they've worked to, say, use this um, these different technologies to say, like, okay, well, how can we stay within these confines, yeah. stay within these expectations, exactly. and still deliver really healthy food? I think that's that's the thing that before, the, before we played that tape, um, you were talking about what inspires you. Uh, to talk about food and what continues to inspire me. I don't know that I knew enough to know it from the get-go, but what I see again and again and again, there's very little like actual, particularly monetary incentive for these people to go to bat like this. Right. Um, but again and again, like I'm thinking of Vanessa Lingu from Cater Toronto, like there's, and you know, Letitia Bowen and like all these different people that we've met, they're working their butts off they're creating models for, and they're saying like, we need to change this. I'm trying this version. Please use my information and take it forward so that things change. Like Mm -hmm. uh, bigger than just, I don't need recognition here. I just need movement here and we're gonna keep going. Um, Please see what is applicable to what you're doing in hospitals from what we're doing in daycares um, and and see how you would scale it up. But like, I need to practice this or someone needs to practice this and mm-hmm. and we'll take it from there. So I really do respect what they're doing. Yeah, I think it comes from a very real place. <laughs> um, and I, I was really interested to see, I mean, uh, some of the obstacles I think are, are pretty obvious Um, but again when we start tracing things back to why things are the way they are and we I can we can point at things like and again I was a little surprised that they weren't afraid to to say hey maybe doctors are part of the problem Mm. maybe part of the problem is that they receive four hours of nutritional uh, training yeah there's a lot of versions like that it's the reason that we do psych psychiatry instead of psychology it's like short-term quick easier straightforward stuff yeah it was interesting my roommate um can't eat gluten she's figured that out she went to the naturopath Um, but this was after a long time of trying to work with a doctor to figure out what was happening inside Mm -hmm. um and they're throwing painkillers at her yeah it's just like because again (laughs) they get more training that way and again that was another thing that lulu said that I mean, they didn't want industry in these the second round of discussions, which you can understand that makes a certain amount of sense. But she's saying, well, I mean, she called doctors industry because, to be honest, like they meet with pharmaceutical reps, and they are the ones that are they're they're prescribing, and they're again their education is more slanted in that direction Mm -hmm. than it is in food and using food as part of you know, the healing process. For sure. Right. And yeah, obviously, yes, there are some doctors that are very in tune with that. Mm -hmm. And I think you're, I feel like you're seeing more and you're hearing more of that, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, doctors are advising people on, on food and they are, they are themselves, I think more interested in food, especially I think as you see some young doctors come out 
you know, you see more of that, right? Mm -hmm. You see more of that uh, European or South American influence, right? Of uh, bringing what food into that. What do you mean by that? that? Just for people of who aren't bringing clear, food like, into because I think if you look at, at in Europe and parts of South America, that is part of the discussion. You know, you are if you're ailing from something, part of the discussion of your protocol is uh, diet. is diet is food, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I think that's that's very interesting to to think about uh, again those subliminal messages and going back to our childhood. I mean. Uh, yeah, uh, the stuff we're talking about. Yeah, yeah like cooking with boxed. food when it's boxes, right? Well, I certainly remember like my experience with food at the table was eating cereal box and reading the cereal box, and mm -hmm. this playing is playing the game on the back. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you're just that's part of. I mean, that's what kept your attention, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it also you enjoyed it, and again, you just have the experience, and it becomes your brand, and you just keep eating it, and. There are those uh, addictive elements in it, like sugar, that make you want to just keep coming back to it. Yeah, for sure. So your things are stacked against uh, you from a young age. But again, all the more reason to get in there at this age and say, hey, by the way, yeah, if we uh, had a banana instead or if we had some fruit or some vegetables instead or you know, and just showing uh, kids that. I think it just does all come down to food literacy at the end of the day and... I know it's no one's fault. It was societal. It was just where we were in history, whatever. Um, but I know that I'm still coping with bad habits that were formed when I was itty bitty. And right. and now it's exciting to have access to the farmer's market or know where things are coming from, to mm -hmm. work in restaurants where this is a priority. That sort of thing is wonderful. But it just does need to... Well, you told me the story the other day. It was like you're handing rye the banana in the peel right. before you're, you know, chopping it up and putting it in a bowl for him or whatever, right? Yeah. So, like, just making the link. Yeah. It's beautiful. And what's not interesting about that, f about food, you know? Yeah. All this stuff. If you look at, like, the first time I went to fruit, the apple orchard, yes. I went to the apple orchard that was really, really special. Yeah. Macintosh apples are the best when you can get them. That's an aside. But anyway, <laughs> it's like very memorable. Yes. And it's about day. sort of creating those those memories and mm -hmm. creating those associations with food and doing it from a young age. Yeah. And that was another episode of Foodstuffs. Thanks this week go to Lulu Cohen Fresnel and David Fresnel of Real Food for Real Kids, of course. Thanks always to Ken Stauer and Eric Betlam and Sam Petit of CIUT. We are here again and we appreciate it. And thank you for listening. Um, if you want to keep in touch with us between Wednesdays, you can find us on Instagram and uh, Twitter at Foodstuffs Life. We are on Facebook. You can find us by searching Foodstuffs. We are also on the internet at www, in case you didn't know, dot foodstuffs.life breaking it down people breaking it down that's <laughs> that's on the internet so go to the internet dot www no dot right. it's confusing uh, subscribe to us on iTunes Stitcher we just added Overcast, us on Google, Google, Google Play Google Play Zoom. we're on sorry Google guys Play now. didn't know that was a thing yep we got you so please subscribe to us <laughs> listen every week that's right I'm Jessica Walker. And I'm Brian Goldman. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you next Wednesday. Bye.